0: guys the notes of that song cross town traffic i'm um, not by jimmy hendrix that version that was living color and and if you live in seattle you know traffic in seattle is terrible everywhere get on the road anywhere near peak hours and you have no idea what you're heading into and and as mayor i heard about it trust me mayor your dang bike lanes are destroying your commute or why didn't we plan ahead for all of this growth i mean seattle's growing like crazy and I spent a lot of time on this and and I can report to you folks that the problem is not a bunch of outside agitators bringing you bike lanes. It was an inside job. I tell you, it was an inside job. It was the traffic engineers and the urban planners. They actually planned this mess. Wider roads, more parking spaces, highways running through cities, sprawl on the edge of town, and then some more sprawl. It was a plan and every last bit was pre-approved by professionals. And I have one of those professionals on my show today, Chuck Marone of Strong Towns, which is a great organization. And, and I'm not going to beat him up for what, what he helped bring us because Chuck has had a road to Damascus moment. He has reformed. He has seen the light. And as Penance says, uh, he's bringing a message of truth about infrastructure and planning through his organization. And uh, we're going to talk about Strong Towns a little bit because here's the, the thing. It's not just about traffic. The way we have built our places have made them less safe, more polluted, less pleasant than they should be. And, you know, those were my motivations in getting involved in my neighborhood with the Sierra club and and running for mayor. But Chuck's focus is not on any of that. For him, it is all about the finances. How do we build places so that we can actually afford to maintain them? But I'm getting ahead of the interview. We'll let Chuck do all of the explaining. Chuck, welcome to the show.
1: Mr. Mayor, thank you so much. It's it's an honor and a pleasure to be on with you. I, I do really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Well, it's really nice to have you on the show. And you're also the first guinea pig of, of doing a show via Skype. We're actually not in the same studio. We're, we're long distance. so We're going to see whether we can pull this off. Let's do it. So first of all, tell me what Strong Towns is.
1: Well, Strong Towns now is a national and in some ways an international movement of people pushing for change. It didn't start out that way. It started out as me working as a, as a planner and an engineer here in central Minnesota, writing a blog about the things that I saw in my community that I, I couldn't really explain. They just didn't make a lot of sense to me. I, I started writing a blog in 2008. And over time, it, it grew. And I, some friends of mine encouraged me to start a nonprofit. They actually filled out the paperwork and then paid the application form to get it going and said, you you just keep writing. And pretty soon uh, we had a local foundation who said, you know, this stuff is interesting to us. You you should really pursue this more seriously. And they gave me three years of of kind of part-time startup money. Pretty soon people started calling from around the country asking me if I would come and speak at different things they were putting on. And. Boy, I, I looked over my shoulder one day and said, we we have a, a movement of people here uh, around a set of principles that want to to do things differently.
0: So what's the uh, message? What's the Strong Towns message?
1: Well, the, the core of the Strong Towns message is that our, our cities are going broke. Our, our cities are financially really, really fragile. And what we have come to experience as growth is really what we call an illusion of wealth, uh, a short-term kind of sugar high that we get from the, the model of development we do today that leaves us with huge long-term financial liabilities. And what our kind of key insight was is that the, the way we build today is really not financially viable. It, 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 it is not over the long term making our cities stronger, it's actually making them weaker. And when we realize that, we can start to ask some really sophisticated questions about well, what what does work and what would be a better approach. And and what we find is that when cities grow more slowly and incrementally, when they make small investments over a broad area over a long period of time, when they focus on the, the details and the fine grain and things are scaled to actual human beings, what we find is that not only do we build places that people enjoy more, that, that are actually more successful in, in a lot of ways. But financially, that's how you actually build a, a successful place. That's how you build a place that pencils out uh, you know, positive from a cash flow standpoint as well.
0: So give me some examples. You were saying that you were, you were in this field, you came to certain realizations. Give me some examples that, that fed the, the conclusions you just shared with us.
1: Well, I could, I mean, I have many, many, I think there were a couple epiphany moments for me. There was, there was one where I was doing a sewer and water and roadway project for a city as, as an engineer. And I was, I was looking at these people that we were assessing. So an assessment is when you, the public does a project and then you make the people adjacent to it pay the costs. And we were assessing these people uh, around thirty thousand dollars a piece and this was the the late 1990s so this was you know a while back and that was a huge amount of money but i looked at these places and they were all trailer houses i mean the the trailer houses themselves were maybe worth 30 or forty thousand dollars and there was no way these people were going to be able to pay that and there, there was no way that this was going to make their property worth anymore which is kind of like the base of, of doing a project like that um and i i started saying well what what actually are we doing here? And I, I, I realized that what we were doing was just kind of perpetuating a, a, a machine. You know, we we needed to do a certain amount of projects each year. Uh, the city needed to finance a certain amount of projects each year. They need a certain amount of assessments to keep the whole thing going. And it, it wasn't really about providing value to people. It was just about kind of churning the machine. I, I had another epiphany moment when I got my own tax statement one year, and I I just spent some time kind of going through my own city's budget. And I, I knew, you know, in a rough sense where the numbers went. And I got my tax statement and I looked at it and I realized that the amount of taxes that I was paying the city wasn't even going to be enough to afford to plow my own driveway. You know, if I were to have hired someone to plow my driveway over the course of the winter... Uh, I would have had to pay way more than what I was going to pay the city for taxes for the year to not only plow the road in front of my house, but actually maintain the road and fix the road and every other road that I would drive on in the city and fix the parks and, you know, maintain all the stuff. And I I just it it just don't like this is not possible. This amount of this is not even in the ballpark. But what and so the- I started just looking at, you know, developments and, and asking some really hard questions and penciling them out and realized that very, I mean, very little of what we build, nothing that we've really built uh, in the last 20, 30 years, particularly when you get outside of core cities, you know, core downtowns and core neighborhoods, none of it pencils out, none, zero, like none of it.
0: But don't the wealthy places spin off enough tax revenue? Doesn't downtown Seattle spin off enough to pay for all that sprawl or, or downtown Brainerd spin off enough to pay for the rest of your community?
1: The The short answer is no. But I, I think the deeper answer is even more insidious than that. You know, you, you asked that question, you said, don't the wealthier areas. The, the problem is, is that in a lot of our communities, the, the wealthier areas, as we would define them at strong towns, the places that create excess wealth and have high financial productivity. You, the city is going to receive more revenue from those places than it actually spends in services. Those tend to be often the places that are occupied by the poorest people in the community. We did a, an analysis in Memphis, Tennessee where we showed the mayor there, A.C. Wharton, a, a really great guy, but you know, an, an African-American mayor who had a city that has a very, very high proportion of African-Americans living in poverty. This is a, a huge concern for him. And we showed him how his most impoverished neighborhoods, his neighborhoods where it, it, you know, very high uh, rates of, of real desperation, were actually on a per acre basis generating more taxes than the wealthiest areas that they were building kind of brand new out on the edge of the community. They were actually having a, a net subsidy from the poorer neighborhoods to the richer neighborhoods. This is a pattern we've seen repeated every time we've done this analysis. It's kind of a a ubiquitous universal thing with the American development pattern that we take from these kind of traditional neighborhoods and places that were built slowly and incrementally over time, but are often today inhabited by some of the poorer people. And the, the excess tax revenue from those goes to prop up the stuff we've built the last two, three decades.
0: You've, you did, um, on your blog, you, there's something you've called the Taco John Study, in which <laughs> is, it was in Brainerd, and I'll, I'll give a little bit of the background, but, but the gist of it was that there was a, a block in downtown Brainerd that was viewed as blighted. It was one or two-story buildings, you know, the type you see in many neighborhood business districts around Seattle, around many communities, and they were uh, replaced ultimately with a fast food outlet with a surface parking lot. And the study you did was you took a look at how much tax revenue came from all of those old blighted businesses as compared to how much money came from the Taco John. But that's not the whole story, is it? The city put some money in to make the Taco John happen.
1: (laughs) And I I don't often tell the whole story because it it complicates things, you know, beyond – the, the simple narrative of it. I mean, the, the thing that makes the Taco John's compelling is that you have an actual apples to apples comparison. These are two identical blocks. There's one block in between them. You can look at them and see that they're the exact same size, the exact same area. And your gut tells you that that old rundown junkie one with the pawn shop and the liquor store and the tattoo parlor, that, you know, that has to be way less valuable than the brand-new, shiny-new, double-lane drive-through uh, Taco, you know, just a Taco John's is what it is. And, and you know, your, your gut says, well, the Taco John's has got to be worth way more. It's brand-new, it's nice, you know. And the reality is, is that the, that old and blighted block produces almost double the tax revenue that, that that new one does with the same area, the same amount of infrastructure, everything. It's stunning, but it's it's even more depressing when you actually dig into it and realize that those are numbers that ignore the tax subsidy that the taco place gave. My my city actually gave, uh, in what is just an epic fail, uh, 26 years of tax subsidy to that taco joint uh, to move three blocks over. So we used to it used to be located in, in a building that is still abandoned. It, there's nothing in there now. Today it's a dead place. The city uh, gave them. Uh, almost three decades of tax subsidy to move two blocks over, tear down a block that was worth double the value, and then build this uh, this taco joint. And the thing about it is that everybody celebrated it. I mean, it was one of the projects of the year. We got rid of blight. Everybody was happy. Uh, nobody ever stopped to do the very simple math and and ask the question. You know, are are we actually getting a return out of this? Um, incidentally. Because I'm I'm from a small town, uh, my I, I have one cousin <laughs> who's the head of the you know part of the economic development authority, and it was actually her job to put this tax subsidy together. And then I've got a second cousin who actually runs the taco joint. And so you know family reunions are kind
0: of tough sometimes. <laughs> when you we're coming to that season when
1: you're the bearer of the the bad news, right?
0: Well, we're coming to that season, aren't we? With Thanksgiving, yeah. You know what's yeah. this is really this is really fascinating though. I mean, you and I share something in common, which is stuff like this really matters to us. You know, and I was really active in my neighborhood association and working on new development and and trying to figure out how to make the place more walkable. and And my neighborhood of Greenwood is is kind of a classic streetcar suburb. It was built up before zoning was in place. There's a lot of one- and two- and three-story buildings, and you've got narrow-front businesses, small businesses. You have offices or residences above them, and then you, it goes back to some apartment buildings behind that and then the single-family zone. Even though we're in a big city, this is a development pattern that you could see in a small town or, or a much larger city, You know, depending how far you were from, from the downtown core. I came at it from a livability, walkability, and an environmental perspective. And I was really struck by, when I started reading the Strong Town stuff, actually before I started reading it, when I became mayor, what I was struck by was the financial implications of our development patterns as well. The cost of the infrastructure to spread out over the huge Puget Sound region was beyond the ability of folks to pay for it. And that's a pretty hard thing to say to people. Everybody just kind of thinks, well, all we need to do is just get the willpower to raise a few more taxes and we can take right. care of everything. How do we get here, Chuck? What happened? Well,
1: it's funny because my journey to this was way different. I mean, I, I, I went to college to be a civil engineer. I got out and I started building this stuff. And I knew in my heart that this was the right thing to do. I, I was building the frontage roads and the parking lots for the strip malls and running the sewer and water at, far out to the edge of town and you know, I was helping with the, the highway widenings and, and, and all that. And that was what I was doing for my career. And I, I knew I just knew in my heart. Because this is how you build a great America. This is where all the the great people were living. This is all where all the wealth was moving to. And I just I sensed that, you know, people like you, (laughs) Mr. Mayor, (laughs) who would have talked about, you know, livability and nice neighborhoods with good frontage. I mean, that that was all like happy talk, but that's not where the action is. I, I was where the action was. And it was only when I started to ask some different questions. I started to say, well, okay. If this is true, why is this city that's been doing this so far in debt? Why is this city that's been doing this not able to maintain this stuff? Why are taxes going up in the places that are growing the most or or, or grew the most for the last two decades? And it was only then that I realized that you know th- this this doesn't work. And I, I use that term "illusion of wealth." Uh, it's it's a it's a important term because. The way we grow today is really seductive. I did a job for a big box store back in the 90s when I was working for this engineering firm. And they came in and they said to the city, we'll pay to run the sewer and the water and the frontage road and everything uh, three quarters of a mile up the highway from where it is today. And the only thing that we're going to ask is that you maintain it when we're done and that as the properties in between develop, that we get paid back by them. So zero money for the city, right? The city spends nothing and they get all this development, all this new infrastructure and all this new capacity. And so of course we did it. I mean, I helped them set it up and do it. It was, We were looked at as geniuses. And the, the revenue from that new big box store created all kinds of opportunities for the city to buy a parkland and expand city hall and put in a new maintenance facility and, and do all this great stuff. The problem is, and this was the... Uh, you know, like 1997 when we did this, we're we're now, you know, almost two decades removed from that. And what we see is that frontage road has to be fixed now. Uh, That pipe is actually kind of settling, and in places they've got to go back and fix it. And when you you look at these costs, which are like the early preliminary costs, I mean, these are not the long-term maintenance costs. These are like the little maintenance hassles you have at the end of the kind of first life cycle. They're, they're daunting and the city can't keep up and they can't maintain this stuff. And so what was a good deal two decades ago created this illusion that we were wealthy for re- literally the last, you know, two decades. And now it's starting to sink in that, oh my gosh, we have lots and lots of liabilities here. Now the kicker on that is that while this big box store is still open, one of the other ones that came in is closed now, you know, boarded up and, and empty. And, you know, that, that, Is not coming back, right? There's no reuse for that building, really, that's going to be anywhere near the original tax base. So the way we got here is by being seduced by short term economic gains that that were very real, but were an illusion. And we didn't grasp that this was short term. And now we're kind of stuck with a nationwide development model geared around these short term gains. And our cities are just choking on the liabilities.
0: You just need another Walmart. It's uh, was, that seems <laughs> to be the solution. Just get them to build another one uh, further out and pay for that road too first. Um,
1: there's a mantra. There's a mantra that I was hit with that I that I subscribed to uh, early in my career, which is you know if you're not growing, you're dying. And it was an observation of you know cities that are growing outwardly look really good, and cities that are not growing. Uh, outwardly look really bad. They're falling apart. And to me, the answer was then, well, you just need to grow, you know, do whatever you can to grow. And I, I think that's the mentality that we've come up with when actually what we need to do is say, how do we have a development pattern where when you experience growth, you get more success, but when you don't experience growth, you you don't automatically fall apart. You, you, you actually can <laughs> sustain um, you know, years or decades or even generations with just modest improvement without completely collapsing. And and that's the Achilles heel of the American development pattern is you, you can't. If you don't have growth, you completely fall apart. And actually, not just growth, but accelerating levels of growth, which is impossible to sustain.
0: Well, we're seeing this here right now in the state of Washington, which is, and I was talking about my neighborhood work when I when I got involved, uh, we were north of the old city line, my neighborhood, parts of it were. So there weren't, there weren't sidewalks. So I was like, well, what do we have to do to get sidewalks built here? And I got started on that. And we actually managed to put together a couple of small projects. But I remember being told at the time by the city folks, we don't build sidewalks, or very few, and we, don't, we actually can't afford to maintain your uh, residential streets. We don't have enough money to maintain our, our arterial streets. After that, there was a a citywide property tax levy that that helped get at that. There's been more recently been another one, uh, but there's still large amounts of the city without infrastructure uh, that really need it. And we have bridges that we don't really know how to fix yet. But the pressure to keep building more new stuff remains in place. And and I always thought, well, you just got to go to a different level of government to find the money, right? Obviously, if the city can't pay for it, why don't we go to the state? Well, the state has the same problem Uh, and and they did just pass a big state transportation measure, but about 80% of the highway money was actually for new construction. Meanwhile, our oldest roadways are are due for rebuilding, you know, whether it's I five, which runs through center of town, five twenty, which crosses Lake Washington or something that's popped into the national news. Our, our tunnel on our downtown waterfront was a replacement for a 1950s highway. You know, one of the oldest highways replacement's coming due. Okay, well, we'll go to the feds then. Uh, they must have the money. Well, they've been you know holding together their transportation budget with uh, you know duct tape and bubble gum for the last decade or so, and nobody wants to raise the taxes. And, and again, a lot of people think, well, if we just had the will to raise taxes. But if you dig a layer deeper, you find that a lot of stuff was built by somebody else, and the maintenance cost was put back on the local governments, and nobody's showing up to pay the maintenance costs for those things.
1: It's fascinating, and I'll give some concrete numbers because I've I've heard the this you know the notion that if we just had the courage to raise taxes, when you actually get to a city level and you start asking the right questions about what is our liability, what what are the promises that we've made, the most extensive study that I've ever been involved in was in Lafayette, Louisiana. In Lafayette, Louisiana, we examined every pipe. Every sidewalk, every road, we, we looked at every ditch and every drainage structure and said, Here, here's how much this is going to cost to maintain you over the next life cycle, over the next generation, the next 50 years. And to put that in terms of the median house, so the, the median house in Lafayette is worth $150,000. That family pays about $1,200 a year in taxes in order for that family to contribute their share of what maintaining everything that the city has promised to maintain would be is from $1,200 a year to $8,500 a year. There's no amount of courage in the world that will get you from 1,200 to 8,500 just to maintain what you have. And and that's in a family, you know, that would be a family whose median household income is around 45,000, so you're talking, you know, one out of every four and a half dollars, you know, five dollars that they bring in is going to have to go towards maintaining existing infrastructure. It's, it's just not going to happen. And so the, the implications of that, and I was really disappointed with what happened in Washington state because it was a, a huge mixed, missed opportunity uh, to actually sit back and, and ask some of these hard questions. It was essentially, let's throw a little bit of money at kicking the can further down the road the thing that we actually have to talk about at the local level and at the state level is contraction. If you've built more than you can sustain, if you're a city like Lafayette, which Seattle absolutely is, a, a city like Lafayette that cannot, even if they had the courage, raise taxes by $7,000 a family a year, what are you going to do then? You know what, what, what are your options then? And when you start going down that road, you realize that that not only is building new stuff just patently insane. I mean, we do have to have a, a plan for how we devolve or how we contract, how, you know, what are we going to give up on versus uh, what are we going to maintain? And, you know, you can look at the end game in Detroit which essentially is a, you know, everybody likes to explain Detroit in one way or the other. There's a right-wing narrative on Detroit. There's a left-wing narrative on Detroit. But when you look at Detroit, Detroit was the city that started the American auto-based development pattern sooner than everybody else. They did it more robustly than everybody else. And they, you know, in spreading everything out over this huge area, they essentially arrived at the logical destination sooner than everybody else. If we're going to avoid going through the the, uh, just persistent decline that a place like Detroit has experienced, we need to ask some harder questions and we need to talk about how do we triage our obligations here so that we can get our neighborhoods and our people through this transition from this illusion of wealth into something that is actually financially viable
0: well seattle is strong enough financially you know its economics are strong enough that it it can maintain that illusion for longer but even here you know we we are in king county and king county is letting some of its roads go to gravel they they've made that decision they can't maintain them any longer so and and that was a hard choice for them but they they did they had no other choice because the revenues didn't give them any other options and what's interesting is we've seen some uh, transportation departments around the country actually say just what you're saying. We have, we're have we going to have to start deciding about which roads are our priorities and which ones are not.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I was at an event last summer and we kind of made some national news at Strong Towns because the uh, – I, and I, I don't think he got caught up in the moment, but maybe he did a little bit. But the DOT uh, chair, the, the head of the Iowa Department of Transportation said – our system's going to contract. And I actually had him on recording saying that. So I, I put it on our podcast and we shared it out. And, and he was called by a bunch of national media people. Did you really say this? And he, yeah, I said it. We've since seen a wave, you know, Tennessee, uh, New Jersey, uh, Washington state to a degree, uh, you know, have, have essentially acknowledged that, look, we, we've kind of run the course on our ability to build new stuff and the future it's not going to include a lot of new. It's going to include a lot of uh, fixing and maintaining and hanging on to what we've got and trying to make better use of it. And I think that's a real I think that's the start of a real productive conversation.
0: It's a hard conversation with the public and, and I'll, well
1: you know. it's really hard, especially when you step back and you realize that you know it, let's just take the engineering profession that I'm in engineers get freaked out when you start having this conversation. Because, you know, even though I would say most engineers believe they're doing great things for humanity, and, and they feel like at the end of the day, their their work is, you know, worthy of, of, of a of, you know, they're not doing what they do just for money, right? They're doing what they do because there's a greater purpose to it. But when you step back and you say, well, look, you know, we're, we're going to, diminished your budget a little bit and changed things around, they they freak out because they realize that, you know, that's their job. That's what they get paid to do. That that's not the business model that they have. So you look just at the engineering profession and say, well, there's a lot of engineering firms and a lot of government employees in engineering departments that actually need to get a different business model. Does that mean they won't be engineers? No, it, it doesn't at all. But their model will be how do we do better maintaining stuff as opposed to how do we continue to grow things well that's the engineering profession now take the developers the retailers the you know go through like every part of our economy and realize that that we have an economy that is 25% housing and construction related activities and you start messing with that and saying we got to change the business model for a fourth of our economy, and you're going to get a lot of resistance. That's before you even start talking to people about, you know, <laughs> you might have to find a different way to deal with congestion. Um, you know, we, right. we, we might not be able to maintain your dead-end cul-de-sac. Uh, when when the sewer goes bad, you know, here five miles away from the sewer plant, uh, we, we, we may not be able to fix it, or we may have to charge you more. Those are difficult conversations too. So yeah, i there's no part of me that thinks this is easy. This is really, really hard stuff.
0: Well, I'll give you a view from inside the mayor's office. So when I took office in 2010, we were in the middle of, a, of the Great Recession. So we had to cut our budgets. You know, you look at where you can save money on your services, direct services that you're providing. It's hard. The needs are actually getting higher in a recession, you know, particularly human services. You can defer the maintenance spending but it, you find out that that's actually already been done. Um, you know, right. we weren't sealing cracks in the roads, which helps prevent potholes. We weren't doing chip sealing on some of our roads, which is another low-cost maintenance thing that saves you money in the long run. Um, so you start pushing off some big projects, and and your maintenance declines just a little bit more. And you look at this, and you go, oh, boy, we really can't raise tra- taxes in the middle of a recession either. So where it takes you to, and where your analysis takes Places to as well, is, well, how do we break this cycle? How do we actually generate more revenue for the city without necessarily increasing the amount of infrastructure we have to pay for? How do we be more efficient? And part of the way you get more efficient is you get more jobs and more people getting served by the same infrastructure, which will lead you to more taxes. Um, And you can probably capture some other efficiencies too. Once you've got more people living in a place... Maybe you could serve them with with transit and certainly you have a better tax base to support that transit than you had before, which brings us right to the heart of of the other very difficult thing about this issue, which is talking to communities about how how do you be welcoming to more people because they can actually help you share the load of paying for all those parks and community centers and infrastructure and public safety and fire departments and police officers that that you say you really want. Um, so that's, that's the other really hard part about this conversation.
1: It, it is a hard, it, and there's a, there's a, there's a mindset out there that I've, I've heard many times. And sometimes, you know, you hear politicians say, we need to run the city like a business. And I, I just fundamentally reject that because cities are not businesses. The, the primary difference between a city and a business is that a business can fail, um, you know, a city can't fail. I mean, a, a city can fail. You can go Detroit and declare bankruptcy, but it's not like Detroit then gets taken over by Cleveland and run, you know, differently. Like the assets stripped off, and and you know, you get a fresh start. That's what bankruptcy does for businesses and the private sector. It doesn't happen in government. So you just have despair when governments fail, right? But you know, when when you when you say the government should be run like a business. I do think that there's a sense that we can apply some business principles to how we operate government. And and one of the kind of base business principles is that when you have a difficult time, you you need to figure out how to do more with less. You you need to figure out how to be more productive. And when you look at cities' assets and you look at cities' liabilities, if you have a block of pipe uh, and you have you know four shops along that, or five homes along that. If you can turn that into eight shops and ten homes, uh, you know, you've got the same amount of pipe, the same amount of expense. but now you have more tax base and and you know, so your financial productivity is going to go way up. That's essentially how you solve these problems. Now, the pushback that you get from a city standpoint is that people say, "Well, we don't, we don't want that growth. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want five more homes in my neighborhood. I like I, my single-family <laughs> homes. I, I don't want duplexes, and I don't want grandma flats in the back, and I don't, I don't want the growth." And there's some logic to that. Yet, when we study historical development patterns, when we look back before this huge auto experiment that we had in this country. What we realize is that we've created what we at Strong Towns call the bad party. Uh, One of our board members, a guy named Ian Rasmussen, likes to throw nice parties and likes to go to nice parties. He lives in New York. And he said, you have a good party. A good party is one where everybody who shows up brings more alcohol, more food than they actually consume. And if you've got a party like that, what do you do? You open up the doors and you invite everybody in. You say the more people that come, the better the party gets. But when you have a party where everybody who shows up actually drinks more alcohol and eats more food than they bring, what do you have? You've got a bad party. Everybody that shows up just makes the party worse. So what do you do? You slam the door. You say nobody else can get in. What our cities used to be is a good party. Everybody that would show up meant we could do more stuff. you know more people arrived wow, we can get a, a better fire service now or more people arrived and oh we can we can put in a library now or we can afford to pave the streets because we got more people here. But in our this illusion of wealth, we, we've essentially gone out and through debt through a, a bunch of different mechanisms, financed pretty much everything for everybody in a lot of ways. Um, and so really if, if you're someone living on a block, and you tell me, well, next door the house is going to go from a single-family house to a duplex. Well, that doesn't mean I get anything more. All it means is that I've got more congestion. There's going to be more people waiting in line, at, you know, at the library. There's going to be, uh, you know, fewer parking spots out on the street. It, 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 we've created our development pattern that is a bad party. And what we actually have to do, and, and I'm not suggesting it's going to be easy. It's going to be really tough, is start now correlating again. Essentially, your neighborhood's ability and willingness to accept growth and development in an incremental way uh, with the level of service that we're going to be able to provide in that neighborhood. I'm not suggesting you go from single family homes to five story condo units. That's kind of the thing we wind up getting when we suppress growth. I'm talking about a single family neighborhood allowing by right things like duplexes and granny flats. the the next increment of development. And if you can do that, if your neighborhood is willing to do that, then that's a place where the city can actually, when they're triaging their infrastructure dollars, actually justify spending money. Because look, we can apply those business principles and we can actually get more productivity out of these investments. But if you're sitting in a block and you say, you know, okay, we're financially unviable right now. We demand more in services than we're willing to pay in taxes. Uh, and we're going to fight you on raising taxes because we can't go from 1000 to 8000 It's not going to happen. But we're also going to fight you on increasing the productivity of the city. Well, there's only one destination then, and that's Detroit. I mean, there's only one place to end up. So to me, I, those are difficult conversations, but those are the conversations we need to ultimately have. How do we get back to a good party?
0: You know, one of the things, I was talking about my neighborhood, and, and part of what we think is if we just plan better, I put that into the intro for, for a reason. <laughs> if we just plan better, and I and I go back and look at my neighborhood, which has which is charming in in its uh, at the center of the neighborhood. In fact, if we look at the places in Seattle we love the most, you know, our historic district, of Pioneer Square, the Pike Place Market, or or Capitol Hill, it tends to be a lot of different things jumbled up together, and it was built before we put in zoning which tended to segregate uses and put more and more restrictions on things. Now, of course, it's a pretty uh, crazy thought if anybody says, that, says we should get rid of zoning. But what's fascinating is people will ask, well, why can't we build buildings like we used to? And the answer frequently is because it's against the law. You, you actually yeah. can't build that anymore. That brick apartment building now has to have uh, one parking space per unit, which now means they have a two-car-wide uh, parking garage door uh, on the street, They've got to excavate a big bunch of the basement. And by the time you pay for all that parking and, and fit the parking spaces in, we can only fit in so many apartments and they have to be a certain size and a certain price to make it pencil. So we can't build that, that charming old brick apartment building without any parking that has smaller, more affordable units. This is actually, again, it's the plan. We've actually made this the plan. And you, the resistance to bad development which is understandable because not everything that's been built is beautiful, <laughs> by any right. means. Totally. Uh, but that resistance to bad development then leads to a set of restrictions that that prevents you from getting uh, that the, that kind of organic development that we love when we see it in an in an older part of town.
1: Well, I, I am in many ways the planner that has rejected planning now, and and, and I, I I know that back in my engineering planning days, because I, I I worked for as an engineer for five and a half years, six years, and then I went to graduate school and got a planning degree. And part of my pursuit of a planning degree was was exactly in the mantra you talked about. I said, well, I was doing all these really dumb things as an engineer. I, I kind of grew to understand they were dumb. If we just did better planning, uh, we could take care of these problems before they arose. And what I grew to realize and understand is that, you know, you, you can even study like Leonardo da Vinci back in Florence and Milan, and, and you realize that, you know, here is probably the most brilliant person that's ever lived. And he made mistakes all the time in, in laying out things and playing things, right? Um, you know, we, we have created a system that assumes that we are going to be run by benevolent geniuses. Uh, with a, a well-informed genius population that has, you know, no degree of, of self-serving to them. And then we're we're shocked at the end of the day when things don't quite work out. I, I think instead of putting our reliance on the notion that we're going to come up with the perfect plan and we're going to be able to execute it brilliantly over the next generation, what we really need are, are frameworks where local where where small little things can happen over a broad area over a long period of time and where mistakes are not only, you know, going to happen, but actually in a sense, be a welcome part of the fabric because they will be early and they will be small. It's just fine to make a mistake. You know, humans learn from making mistakes. That's how you know, you go from being a toddler to an adult is is a a series of mistakes, right? Um, You know, what we have done with our development pattern is assume that no mistake will ever be made or ever can be made. And instead, we need to realize that, no, we need to make a lot of mistakes. We just need to make them early and make them small so that we learn from them and adjust quickly over time.
0: And you'll get a lot of really positive things, too. Right? Well, that's people the whole. The that's good, the whole. The I, I, that's too. the
1: whole notion you're after. That's the outcome. I mean, the outcome of making mistakes is knowledge, and you know, I, I I don't want to bring up any sore subjects, but you know, you guys have done in Seattle a big mistake underground, a huge, uh, you know, gamble, and you, you're you're learning kind of the hard way that this was maybe not the smartest thing to do. Um, you know, we have to step back and say we don't really know what the future is going to be. We know that we can't continue on this path. We, we've got to find a different course. Instead of assuming that we're geniuses and can overcome everything by throwing tons of money and 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 whatever at it, how do we instead I- encourage the, the the hundreds of thousands of people in in all these different neighborhoods to do little things to make their place better and to build on that and learn from the stuff that works and amplify it to the next level. And the stuff that doesn't work, uh, you know, it, learn quickly that it doesn't work and move on to something else. There's a phrase That's actually the heart of the traditional development pattern.
0: Right. And there's a phrase you've given that where you haven't given it, but you've taken it from somewhere else, which is orderly, but dumb and chaotic yet smart. The, there's
1: a, there's a statement from Silicon Valley uh, that says in an, in an age of innovation and communication, which is, is what we're in today, which is different than really where we were at the end of World War II, right? I mean, we tried this huge national experiment of reshaping an entire continent, and, and now we're at a day in an age where uh, we have innovation just accelerating and great communication. In that kind of a, a period of time, innovation that happens from the top down tends to be orderly but dumb. And innovation that happens from the bottom up tends to be chaotic but smart. We, we have a, a preference for smart over dumb, but that preference is often overruled by the really, really strong preference we have for order over chaos. And if you doubt that, just think back to the last time you sat at a red light at one in the morning, right? And you can see blocks in every direction, there's no cars anywhere, but you will not go through that light because you're programmed, as all Americans are, to respect order. Uh, We actually need to, um, you know, create a little bit of room for people to, to innovate and experiment and try new things. The northwest of this country, and and Seattle in particular, is actually one of the places that has done a little bit of this. You guys actually have some really neat standards on crosswalks. Uh, you allow people to do uh, some you know on street stuff that other cities clamp down on. There's some innovation going on there. I, I think we need to accelerate that and you know shift our bureaucracies to be more upward. You know. Downward listening as opposed to upward
0: begging. I have to say, um, there were so many so many different fights around this. Um, when I was working on getting sidewalks in my neighborhood, we had a really narrow right-of-way. And in order to fit in a sidewalk and a little bit of parking strip and a little bit of parking as well, we had to squeeze the right-of-way down to just one car wide. You wouldn't believe how hard it was to to fight everybody. But before that, we had a 40-foot-wide right-of-way where cars drove really, really fast, and it was scary to walk down the street. Um, uh-huh. And that fight was so difficult. And I remember really working to try to convince the city that it was okay to have a narrow street, that the cars would still get through, and it was safe. Um, and we succeeded. And did, that, did they make it a one-way, Mike? Or oh, did no, they keep no, it no. They kept it a two-way. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, here's the yeah. background. Here's the background. Streets in Seattle are so narrow that when you have parking both sides, you can only fit one car through the middle anyway. So we just said, well, we just want the same street as everybody else. But we just had to fight, fight everybody for it. And I should back up a little bit. When I, when I started looking at my street, what I saw was that cars were going really fast because it was very wide, very unsafe to walk with a kid. So how do we slow them down? So, oh, well, we'll give you a radar gun, or we'll, we'll, you know, we'll put up a sign, we'll sort of put up a sign with a lower speed limit. And it, and it didn't work. And I remember a book, a book that was very influential to me that I picked up was something called Mental Speed Bumps. The idea was that if the street looked a different way, you'd have to go slower. And uh, one of the things from the book was talking about how if you had a block party, but let cars still drive through, they drove through very, very slowly. But, but if you insisted on putting a row of traffic cones down the middle of the street so the cars could drive on one side and the party could be on the other, the cars drove fast because they thought now that it was safe. And so that's another example of orderly but dumb, whereas the chaotic is, is actually much smarter. Um, and it's, it's hard to convince people of that.
1: It, it is because we're kind of wired to see the world around us and, and kind of perpetuate that. And we've now, you know, you and I and everyone who is born after us has grown up with this system. And it's really hard to question the basis of it. I did a couple interviews with a guy named Ben Hamilton Bailey. He's an English uh, engineer who works on shared space. And one of my favorite stories of his, he talked about these two neighborhoods in, in Israel. And the one neighborhood was occupied by these uh, kind of German immigrants Who were very orderly and would stop at the 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 traffic signals, and if it was red, they would wait until it was you know the walk sign came, and then they would walk across. And the neighborhood right next door uh, had a bunch of Orthodox Jews who for whatever system of beliefs just, you know, would walk out in the middle of the street and they say, you know, if it's, if it's my time to go, if God says then I'll, you know, it's my time. And, and they, you know, would walk around reading the Bible as they would walk and not watching where they were going. And he said, the neighborhood was just chaotic. There were people like walking all over the place, the rates of fatalities of pedestrian uh, accidents, you know, pedestrians getting hit and killed by vehicles, was like 10 times in in the orderly neighborhood where everybody stopped and followed the rules than in the chaotic one. And the reason was very simple. When you got to the chaotic neighborhood, you knew it was a crazy place and you better keep your eyes open and you better look and make sure because some crazy, you know, Orthodox Jew is going to jump out in front of you and you don't want to hit them. But back in the other neighborhood, you had the illusion that everything was orderly. And so that one odd time when the kid chases the ball out into the street or, you know, the, the person walks across when they're not expecting, those become tragedies because they're unexpected. If we want to make places safe, we actually have to make them a little bit more chaotic. We have to actually, in an engineering sense, stop forgiving the mistakes of the driver and start forgiving the mistakes of, of everybody else who's outside of a car. I, I do this thing with audiences around the country where I, I, I show them the values that engineers bring to design. When an engineer designs a street, they start with the design speed, and then they say, well, okay, given the speed and and what's the volume of cars, how many cars are we expected to handle? Given those two things, what does the manual say is safe, and then how much is this going to cost? And I ask audiences, you know, what are your most important values? Which one would you start with? And it's never speed, it's always safety and then it's cost, and then it's volume, and speed actually comes last. And what we find is that from an engineering perspective, we design for speed. We, design, we start with the design speed, and then everything else is compromised from there. And if you ask people what they want in their neighborhoods, they start with safety. And everything, including speed, is compromised in the name of safety. If we just built places to the values that people have, uh, not only would they be a lot safer, they'd be a, a lot uh, more productive financially, and they'd be a lot more enjoyable for people.
0: You know, one of the things going back to the the idea of planning, as well as as being a trap sometimes, I, I think part of the problem is that the human mind we we think that we can organize things in our brain and then <laughs> push through what the right solution is now that we've thought it it through. And I, I think in that thinking process the big project always seems to have a lot of value. What we need is, you know, a big a big new highway will solve the problem. Or one big new or one big new development or one big new industry will solve the problem. And what's fascinating is is of course it's very expensive. You might be wrong. If you make a mistake it's terrible. Uh, but but when you look at what actually draws people into a downtown like Seattle it's the incredible variety of people, services, businesses, jobs, and and something something magical happens there. So how do you invest in and support variety and diversity? And that means giving now, up a lot of control.
1: I want to ask you a question. Sure. Along these lines, because I have to tell you, um, I don't want to make this a, a political conversation because my, my political uh, nature has just been degraded over the years i I was probably in the well right out of undergrad school i i would have been a republican no doubt i mean i was part of the republican revolution in the mid 90s I, i cheered that uh you know over time my uh partisanship has has waned quite a bit that being said what you just described was my exact reason for not ever being a Democrat. for never I voted for one Democrat in my life. I'm 42 now. And, and the main reason why I've tended to never vote for Democrat is because of exactly the, the thing you just said. Every problem has a, a big solution. Uh, we kind of pretend we know what the solution would be if we just came up with it. You know, if we just had the courage and the willingness to go out and do these big things, we could transform the world. And I, I, I just fundamentally rejected that notion. I'm wondering, and here's my question for you, I'm, I'm wondering how uh, the, the conversation that tends to favor larger government interventions and, and kind of larger, more top-down types of, of approaches is is going to adapt or is it is adapting to the understanding that cities are more like ecological ecosystems than they are like watches that can be fine tuned
0: well I, I think that the problem is not restricted to democrats and and i you know i am a i am a democrat interestingly enough in my career i'm not sure the democratic party really wanted to own me um and in part because i was challenging what we were just, what I was and you were just describing. And it, it's something inherent in the nature of politics that I think captures both Republicans and Democrats, which is that there's an, a lobbying efficiency to the big project, which is, you know once you get the, the engineers and the planning companies and the, the construction companies and the bond underwriters together, you know, now you got the chamber. And then when you got the chamber you're going to get the the trade unions after that you know the the laborers and the carpenters and the and the bricklayers they're all they'll all be there too for the big project because there's a bunch of union jobs when you have a big project and it becomes very very efficient to spend a little bit of money to free up a lot of money from the government and the republicans and the democrats both play that game so that's part of the challenge is you see that institutionalized in in how politics works now you want to come at it from the other way. How do we give how do we get money out to our you know out into our communities and to small organizations to make small bets and small improvements. So I I don't right. think it's democrat republican. I think you can find some republicans who are will be there as well, but you know they've been voting for those highway bills too with no plan on how to pay for them. I think them. The,
1: I think the Republicans uh <laughs> You know, pay a lot of lip service to the idea that you know we should have a, a mar- market feedback and uh, you know uh, systems that are more localized. But you know, when it comes right down to it, they're they're often the most tyrannical in terms of imposing their will on local communities than than anybody. So I'm I'm with you. I'm I think our I think our I, I have I've found that I don't belong on our political spectrum and I, I think one of the reasons you and I have gotten along so well is that you know in some ways you're you're kind of an oddball too. I mean you don't fit into that spectrum very well either And so you know maybe a, a new consensus will emerge over time and we'll find a, a place to be but right now I feel kind of like a political orphan, right
0: So uh, it was really interesting when I went to the strong Towns National Gathering we were it was a pre-meeting of a bunch of folks that were interested and I was kindly invited to it and at some point somebody said, okay, Everybody who's a Republican in this room, raise your hand. And a few <laughs> hands went up. And then somebody said, okay, who's a Democrat? Raise your hands. And a, and a few hands went up. Mine too. Who's an independent? And a forest of hands went up, you know, of the of the people in the room. And I think what we've seen is is the the separation of the political class from just fiscal common sense, right? Like it's so easy to keep the machine going, you know, the machine that feeds the money, to the outfits that then put the money back into the candidates. And nobody really wants to cross it. I mean, in this state, we just almost without blinking, we, you know, provided billions and billions of dollars in tax subsidies to Boeing. We didn't even negotiate to keep the jobs in exchange for the tax subsidies. They've they've been, right. you know, leaving the state for a while. But but no politician wanted to be the one that lost Boeing there were a couple of brave souls who stood up and said how are we going to pay for our schools you know we we're we're in the state we're under a constitutional order to increase funding to schools to meet uh, the paramount duty under the constitution to fund education yet we are now pouring billions into new tax breaks and they were just completely rolled over and i think it's why when you look at politics it's an interesting thing i i i waver between partisanship and and nonpartisanship in this regard but when When the public says government isn't working and you guys don't know how to make sure that we're all sharing in the wealth, 1% versus the 99% thing, when they say you don't know how to manage your budget and we're cynical and mistrustful, there's a lot of truth no matter where somebody is coming from on the political spectrum, which makes it, and now I guess we're getting kind of heavy here, which makes it a pretty dangerous time politically. Because it leaves opening for lots of people to point the fingers and, and, and say it's a different problem. So it's one of the reasons I always liked grassroots organizing, I, and it's why I like local politics, is because I believe if people in my neighborhood, when people sat around and said, what do we want our Main Street to look like? How do we support our local businesses? How do we get sidewalks? I couldn't tell what, what people's politics were but I only have to go up a little bit in the system to discover that everybody's polarized. So how do we get people working, you know, at a local scale on local things and devolve some power from the bigger levels of government down more to the local level? It's not going to be perfect by any means, right? We have human flaws and sometimes we reinforce it in each other and we do bad things even at the local level. But I do think that We've gotten so divorced from what it means to make decisions about our collective future that we're just leaving the door open for, you know, demagoguery right now. And both parties share in that. Both parties have abdicated looking out for regular folks. Uh, I think one party more than the other, but, but both parties have done it.
1: I, I would agree with you. And, and I, I think, you know, without going real apocalyptic here on our audience, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do think that one of the you know one of the the greatest uh, fears that i have is that as humans we are not really any different than any other humans around the world and you can look at times throughout history where people dealt with desperation and difficulty and you know the 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 easiest response particularly when you're the biggest player on the block and you you know you You've got the biggest military and you've got the biggest presence and you've got the most to lose, uh, is is to not act very uh, you know, n- not bacteria, not act very nice. Let's just put it that way. So yeah, one of one of my greatest concerns, and I, I think this election in particular right now uh has kind of freaked me out. I mean, we're 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 very nonpartisan and we don't even talk about candidates at all at Strong Town, So I'm I'm kind of going off the Strong Town script here, but yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's really freaky when we're talking about, you know, the the steps before internment camps and, and other things like right. that. Oh, no, it's, it's, it, it's, it's,
0: it's crazy. Now, when we live in a city, remember, and a region, yeah. and I'm proud of our governor, by the way, for speaking up on this, that, that interned uh, the Japanese in, in World War right. II. And we were talking about, I loved your analogy of a party. So let's bring it back from the uh, apocalyptic to the to the positive. You know, a good party is a place where everybody's welcome, and everybody brings and contributes more than they than they take back from the party. One of the great experiences about being mayor was really getting to know all of the different parts of our city and all of the different communities and cultures within our city. And I got to tell you, there was a line I always closed when I when I spoke to, you know, recent immigrant and refugee groups in the city, and we have a lot. I would say, I'm glad you're here. You make us stronger. And it was the truth because they were bringing something new to the party, right? They were right. bringing relationships with foreign countries. They were bringing uh, new musical ideas and new artistic ideas and new ideas on ways to do business. And one of our challenges was how do we how do we get them into the into the culture, you know? So something like food trucks, we tend to think about food trucks as being oh the hipsters are happy because they can eat you know interesting food, but actually it's a low cost entry point for. An immigrant entrepreneur, and immigrants are entrepreneurs far more than uh, native-born, you know, to the country are. It, it turns out. You know So there's a whole bunch of things you can do that if you're welcoming and open and trying to figure out how everybody can share in the wealth, you get stronger. And I, I think this is the challenge we face. We often talk a lot uh, in the climate world now. We've stopped talking about how we're going to stop global warming and talk about how we're going to be resilient. And I don't think resiliency is just how big is your seawall or how big are your levees to deal with the flooding Amen. that's going to come. Resiliency yeah. is how do communities democratically, small d, democratically, you know, figure out how to work together to solve problems and make sure everybody gets a piece, everybody gets enough out of that party, you know, everybody gets enough out of that community uh, that they feel like they can help make it stronger. And so that's resiliency to me is we got to get at the democracy part of it even before we get at the how do we armor our infrastructure for a warmer world i have people all
1: the time who say to me chuck i i hear what you're saying and i'm i'm with you uh but my city council is not on board and my city's not going in this direction and my engineer and planner don't get it and what what can i do to help things along and i said well th- meet your neighbors you know do, do you know the people who live next door to you and across the street from you. And I, I more than just know their name, do you actually know something substantive about them? If, if something happened, could you actually go over there and, and have a warm welcome? These are, I, I'm more and more convinced that the skills that we need are not going to emanate from a public works office. And they're not gonna be found in a code manual. Uh, those were the skills of, of the last generation or, or two the skills that we need and the things that are going to make our cities really strong and productive is the creative spirit and the ingenuity of individuals acting uh, in small neighborhoods uh, on individual blocks. You know, Richard Florida has written extensively about the creative class and I think sometimes his work gets discounted as elitist maybe because it it focuses on artists but what he's really identified in my mind is a a group of people who see the beauty and potential of places that the rest of us kind of overlook. And these people often are the the pioneers who go into these unvalued places and and make them beautiful again, make them uh, shine. And they they reveal to us a lot of uh, the potential that is just sitting there. I I think when you talk about immigrant populations, when you talk about artists, when you talk about people who are often marginalized by more affluent and prosperous parts of our society, what you have in those groups of people are are the people who are going to change your place for the positive. And, And I think those places that can embrace that segment of their demographic and actually not just create room for them, but actually celebrate them, uh, I think those are the places that are going to be the most successful because that's the group that has the tools to actually build a strong town. It, it's it's not the engineers from the engineering school and it's not the planners or the economic development advisors and their toolboxes. It's just the weird people that just do <laughs> odd things that you'd go, oh my gosh, I never thought that that was a good idea. But now that you've done it, that's kind of cool. Let's do more of that. You know, when That's what our cities need.
0: We had a thing when – when I took office, it, if you wanted to close your street for a street party, you had to give 30 days notice and yeah. get a permit. It's like, you know, it's a street you ever plan. One of those events. I mean, those <laughs> events
1: are spontaneous. You know, my, my wife's like, Oh my gosh, it's my daughter's, you know, it's Chloe's birthday in a week. We haven't got a party. You know, <laughs> the the best kind of events are not ones that are planned 30 days in advance. Come on. And, I, I'm sure they had to have like porta potties and you know a, a escape plans and you know uh, circulation plans signed by an engineer. Yeah, I see that kind of crazy stuff all the time.
0: Well, we've we've incrementally gotten better, and now you can just pretty much do a play street in this city, which is a good thing. Sweet. Yeah, it's and and guess what? It turns out that that's actually not uh, what's going to cause the traffic jam in your neighborhood. Um, and it's a and it's a simple thing to make life better for everybody. So. I started off with a song. You got to finish with a song, and I understand you got a Dylan song for me. What is it?
1: You know, Bob Dylan is, we, we like to celebrate him as being from Minnesota, and, and I don't know if he's ever kind of claimed that himself, but my daughter is just loves his Christmas album, and he does a, just a silly song called Must Be Santa, and she loves to dance to it, and every morning on the way to school, she says, Dad, must be Santa. And so that's my song. Bob Dylan, Must Be Santa, Happy holidays to everybody, and thanks so much for having me on the show.